business owners likely will have only one shot to sell a business. Most don't understand what drives value and how buyers look at a business. Until now. Welcome to the How to Sell a Business podcast, where every week we talk to the subject matter experts, advisors, and those around the deal table about how to sell at maximum value. Every business will go to sell one day. It's only a matter of when. We're glad you're here. The podcast starts now. On this week's podcast, I had the opportunity to visit with Lori Barkman. Um, Lori, I'm a super fan of hers. I'm a podcast listener of her podcast success stories. And she is, you know, she's just one of those people that, that just oozes with advice and guidance. And she's been in the trenches and she came out with a new book recently, and it's called the business transition handbook. And I'll have certainly a link to that book in the, in the show notes, but let me, let me share with you a little bit about about her, but she is she is certainly an awesome interview. So Lori is also known as the business transition Sherpa. She's a former CEO of a hundred million dollar company that was acquired by a Fortune 50 company. And as a business transition expert and certified MA advisor, she provides a structured process for business owners to plan successful exits of their company. So she is, like I said, the best-selling author of the Business Transition Handbook, How to Avoid Succession Pitfalls and Create Valuable Exit Options. So this book demystifies the often overwhelming exit process, guiding, guiding business owners who are considering leaving their ventures or simply beginning to think about their next steps. Lori also hosts the award-winning podcast Success Stories where she speaks to hundreds of entrepreneurs who have shared their journeys through the succession. So when I am me talking with her, we're talking about <clears throat> who is the right buyer for your business. So there's a lot in her book, but I wanted to poke hole. I don't want to say poke holes. I wanted to, to talk about what and who are the right buyers for, for a seller's business as they begin to think about it. And Lori did not disappoint. She, I knew she'd be great, but she dropped so many different value nuggets. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lori Barkman. Well, welcome to the show, Lori, and congratulations on your book, this book. <laughs> there, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. It is a pleasure to be with you today. Well, I before you came on, I I gave a high level overview of you, but I I, I guess it it's always sounds better coming from the person that wrote the book and has the practice. So, can you talk a little bit about the book and 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 the practice that you have? Absolutely. Thanks so much again for having me. I really appreciate you. Um, yeah, it's my pleasure to talk about it. I call myself the business transition Sherpa from my experience as a CEO that went through an exit. And now on this side of the table, as a deal junkie, I love working with business owners to help make them successful from transition to transaction, from creating value to letting go. And it won't shock any of your listeners when I say this, 100% of <laughs> business owners are going to leave their company one day, right? No one should be surprised at that. Are they going to leave horizontally or vertically, Ed? That is the question. And I decided to write the book as a continuation of the work that I do, not only with consulting and advising, but also the podcast. I have a podcast called Succession Stories. And you and I met because of a workshop that I do. And I spent three hours talking to business owners about the power of preparing and yeah. the impact it can have. And so many horror stories are out there when people don't do these things. And so that was the inspiration behind the book is how can I put together kind of this virtual mentor and this Sherpa, I'm a guide, right? I'm a guide yeah. taking you through this journey. And the book is a combination of how to and knowledge, exercises and tools and stories. Right. And the stories are powerful and the stories come from my experience as a CEO and working with clients and then also people's experiences um, from the podcast and stories they've shared about the ups and the downs. 
Well, it it came it came out great, and and as a subscriber to Succession Stories, it's a, it's a it's a great podcast. It and I'm I'm envious. I'm envious as a fellow podcaster. I'm envious of of, of the work you do and and the guests that you have, and and you really are a really good interviewer. So I, I <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm hoping I can live up to to. Uh, for this interview that uh, I can at least I can at least pull a little bit oh, out of you. I'm humbled and appreciative. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> that means a lot to me. Thank you. So the book has a lot in it. And and the good news is that you and I talked a, a week or two ago about what we were going to talk about. And so we're going to focus on page 79. <laughs> we're we're <laughs> yes. going to focus on who are who are the buyers. And and so I guess that's where I'd like to start is, you know, Talk about the different types of buyers, because I, I don't think I don't think I think a lot of business owners just assume, you know, it's it's a third party. But there's different transfer channels that that they can be. So take it away. Yeah. The, each chapter begins with a quote, because on my show, I ask everyone if they have a favorite quote. So I'll share this quote quickly because it's funny and it's Yogi Berra and we love him. Um, and so the, his quote was, if you don't know where you're going, you will end up somewhere else. Right. And this chapter is, you know, smack in the middle of, of 14 or so chapters. And why I put it in this batting order to, to reference my friend Yogi mm -hmm. Berra um, is because I don't want us to start out necessarily thinking about this. There's a lot of good work that leads up to this. But for you and I, we're jumping here. Because it's a really important conversation. And in the context of Yogi Berra's quote, right, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up somewhere else. My encouragement for everyone who's thinking about a transfer of ownership someday, which is probably everyone, um, and there's, there's different kinds of succession, and we'll talk, we can talk about that as well. The focus of what we're talking about here is ownership succession. Mm -hmm. And ownership succession in the sense of the what if. Let us do some mind exercises around the what if. And what I like to advocate for with my clients and, of course, in the book is if we can create options for ourselves and we have enough time to explore those options, then we are in a good place. Mm -hmm. you know, that's a good thing. No one wants to be pigeonholed to one scenario, especially if it's a bad scenario. Right. right. And when we have the fortune of having time on our side, um, sometimes things go awry when it's uh, bad health or right. you know, divorces and things like that. So we want to avoid those situations. And again, we're trying to be proactive here. So in the sense of the what if mind mindset and what could we think about, um, there are three main categories of buyers. So we'll start at this top level and kind of work our way down. The three main categories, what are they? There's strategic buyers, there's financial buyers, and there's related buyers. A strategic buyer, in a nutshell, is an organization. They might be um, in your industry. They might be a big player in your industry. Maybe they're doing a roll-up, or they could be a competitor to you. They could be um, an entity that is looking to acquire assets so that they can stitch them into their current organization and let go what they don't need. And that's financially the mechanism of how they are able in general, and this is a very in general comment, to pay the most, right? So of these three categories, typically, I could be wrong, and it's not all instances, mm. right? Yeah, but in right. many instances, the strategic buyers pay the most. And why that is, is because of the math and that I'm explaining, where if they acquire these assets and they look to stitch them into their current organization, they eventually won't need other pieces of it, which could include people, right, and overheads. Right. And so they get leverage and they can um, get a, you know, the return on that investment over time in the, in the fashion that they need. So that's one category, which is strategic buyers. The second category is financial buyers. And financial buyers can be most commonly private equity groups, which are formed by um, limited partnerships where you have people who are um, providing funding to the group. The, yeah. the investment decisions is made by a smaller group. And then over time, more and more what we call dry powder is put in and available mm -hmm. to um, 
for follow-on investments. Now, there's two important flavors for private equity investments. One would be called a portfolio deal. And a portfolio deal in a private equity group means it's a it's like an anchor tenant in a mall. You're going to be Macy's or you're going to be, right. you know. And so you're going to occupy a pretty big share of that portfolio's investment. And it's a standalone. It can literally stand on its own. And a tuck-in or an add-on are some smaller companies or assets that are tucked in, folded into a portfolio play. Now, why does that matter? It matters because, like I was describing on the strategic side, on the financial buyer side, um, private equity groups have a different mechanism for um, creating value. Typically, they'll have a buy and hold and flip strategy and buy, hold, improve, I should say. Um, And so they're looking to kind of buy low, sell high over a five to seven year time period. Are there exceptions to that? Absolutely. You know, there's definitely private equity firms that have a longer time horizon. And um, so please don't take this as, you know, a forever statement. But in general, that's what we'll see. And so over the five to seven years, it's a sprint to improve the business, you know, scale the business, get it operational the way they needed to, and then sell it. Um, in a tuck-in situation where it's an asset that they want to tuck into, it sort of feels a little bit more like a strategic buy. And so financially, um, the multiples mm-hmm. might look more similar to what a strategic would put on the table. Now, the third category, and I'm skipping over some of the subcategories here, sure. just in the spirit of time, we can mm-hmm. always come back to it. Um, and then in the third category is related buyers. And related buyers could literally mean they're related, could be family, mm-hmm. and they could be, fa- they could be management. So use or think about the word related as like insider. The insiders know where the bodies are buried. They, they know the goods and bads yeah. of the business. And that can be great for some sellers who really want to keep it close and keep it in the community uh, as they've uh, defined it. And the pricing is commensurate with that, right? Where people know the risks because they're very much involved with it or they have exposure to it. And um, especially when it's a situation where a family is going to take over ownership, um, it's probably not the highest market price, right? Sure. So that's how I like to put it in, in the batting order because it, it makes sort of intuitive sense, I think, to think about it that way. Yeah, and and the and the highest price may not be the best buyer, and you know that's and, right. And and certainly with with um, related parties, I mean, I th- I think that we're seeing more and more more and more uh, family operations, you know. Whether they're selling to management, I, I think they are starting to recognize more, you know, the what they did to create the wealth, and and it reflects in in some of their in some of their structures. What do you who do you think is the what I guess what are the advantages and disadvantages of the of the financial buyers versus the strategics? Well, of course, this is in the this is very subjective. You know, it's up to the seller. Yeah. And this is a big part of the conversation that I have with clients because I want them to, to think about different options. So while a strategic buyer might make a ton of sense, there could be a financial buyer that's out there that we just haven't met yet. And it's worth understanding, you know, what their, um, what their fit might look like on the, on the pros and cons for, for related buyers. Let's start there because maybe that's quote unquote easier to talk, to talk about. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Just because someone's related to you doesn't mean they're a good fit to be your CEO, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're a good fit to um, own the business. So there's the there's the capabilities and skills side of that statement. The other side of that statement is is that what they want? So the the aspect of whether or not family or management are a fit is definitely a two way street. And I encourage people if this is something you're considering. Think about it as strengths, motivations, and fit. Strengths, motivations, and fit. If they do not have the core capabilities and skill set, stop. 
don't even continue, right? Don't pass go, just stop. If they do have the skills and capabilities and they can be coached and mentored and grow um, and you think they can get there one day, great. Keep going. Keep having this conversation and find out from them if this is something they want to do. Many people do not want it. They do not want the crown. It it weighs heavy and they just want to do their thing. They don't want to do your thing. They want to do their thing. So figure that out in enough time. And again, that, that could be for your second in command as well as your, as your, you know, what's yeah. your sibling or, or, or child. Um, when it comes to financial versus strategic, I do have a table in the book that kind of compares the two. And I don't give pro con on it because, again, it's very subjective as to whether or not it's a fit for your business. So I just go in with eyes wide open and say, look. Strategics look more like this, and this is why it could be more of a fit for you versus um, versus the whether it's a platform yeah, deal yeah. or a tuck in. Sure. Um, I was working with a buy side a buy side deal. It was a private equity group, and they're doing a roll up of a very specific niche. And so I was I was helping them with getting you know opening doors and and having conversations with owners right. who weren't necessarily thinking about selling. And what was really interesting about the model and the opportunity was that these sellers would, they're very, they were small, right? These are sub 1 million companies, um, again, in a very specific service category. And here was this financial opportunity for them to stay on with the business. And if successful, this roll up would get them probably 100x, right? What that would mean uh, versus just today. And how does that math work? Well, because they were going to roll over a piece of equity, let's say 30% or 25% into this parent organization, this private equity group kind of, you know, global structure. And if that structure sells in five to seven years, it's going to be worth a heck of a lot more than their small business that was under a million in revenue. And for some people, they really saw the opportunity and they were hungry for it. Mm-hmm. And it was a great fit because they wanted to stay on. They wanted to be part of the success and they were excited about that second bite of the apple. There are other buyers that said, no, thank you. Uh, that's not it for me. I'm not interested in that. I want to retire and punch out and I don't want to be part of, you know, yeah. this ongoing organization. So that's why fit really is very subjective because Company A said, yeah, this is awesome. Let's go for it. Company B said, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. You know, the, the funny thing is I think how you, how it's, how it's positioned and the buy-in of the strategy of how it works. And I think you, you, we've both seen buyers that behave in a manner that you can see, clearly see the strategy versus Versus, hey, this is why you should go with me because I'm you're gonna you're gonna have some equity and then we can we can build together and and I think the the latter is inferior to the former. I think that you you see that those those and and this is where I'm I'm going next on this this five twenty rule because I I think that is you can get superior buy in. When when you have some critical mass to the of the acquiring entity, you know, it lowers that risk. So so the 520 rule. What is it? Yeah. yeah. So what let's is talk it? about that. Let's talk about it. The five and 20 rule is something that John Warlow from Built to Sell and the Value Builder System talks about. And I included it in my book because I think it makes a lot of sense. And I've seen it and I've seen it practically speaking also from my experience where. Essentially, a company that could afford is one part of it, afford to acquire you mm-hmm. slash have the interest in acquiring you. That's that's the sort of the five and 20 rule would be that they are between five times, to 20 times larger in revenue than you are. So if your company is a million dollars in revenue, a company that would potentially be interested or and or have the capability to buy you would be five million to 20 million in revenue. So that's that's kind of heuristic. Is it always the case? No, of course not. Because what you could say, well, Lori, does that mean that a big publicly traded company would never buy a small business that's 20 million in revenue? 
Uh, the answer is, of course it happens. It does. Absolutely. Is it rare? Sure. <laughs> Why? Because it has to do with bandwidth. Right. So if you think about these big, big companies that are acquiring, the juice has to be worth the squeeze for them. Now, that was my experience, right? We were acquired by FedEx and, and it was a significant deal, but it was still small for FedEx, right? It's FedEx, right? They have a lot of capabilities. Right. Um, in, in other situations, and I had this happen, I was doing a, a sell-side engagement for a civil engineering firm and I was running a bid process and inviting, inviting uh, parties to the table, both strategics and uh, financial buyers. And I, I had a great corp dev conversation with a firm who was a great fit. And the corp dev group said, they're too small. It's not worth the time for us. We got we to gotta go hunt for larger things that make more impact. Because remember the math we talked about earlier, they're looking for the math to work out. They're looking for deals that are accretive. They're looking for deals that will make a difference to their earnings per share, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think in all cases, can, you know, can there be exceptions? Absolutely. Does that mean you should not knock on their doors? No, I think you should. But I, th- I want you to be realistic about it. So if we think about targets, literally, as like a mm-hmm. you know, bullseye and concentric rings, we might do this analysis based on different criteria. And one of them is going to be their ability to um, have the the financial capabilities to buy you, the team to have the focus and interest, and then focusing on the integration. Because we could talk about in we could talk about post, you know, post deal integration all day long. If they have not been able to plan for an integration, then what are the li- what's the likelihood the deal will succeed mo- longer term? And these companies that have a playbook or they've done this before and they're looking for certain things, um, they're experts at it. They know what they want and they're going after it. And how can you get on their radar? And that's typically, you know, you'll see that in both the, certainly the PE side and the strategic side, but on the P side too, I mean, they're seeing a lot of volume. They have to, they have a, they have to feed the beast. They have, uh, you know, these investments, they need to put it into, into use. And they're always looking at deals. Um, and so they're, they have a process where they, they need to do that. And so you might get more airtime maybe from private equity groups to, to have meetings and so on, whereas Corp Dev yeah. might say, oh, no, it doesn't meet our needs and we'll move on. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, the, the, the size and – it's, and it's funny that a lot of the business sellers just, just think that, you know, that the – you know, even though they're a strategic buyer, that if they're roughly the same size, it's they believe it's a one plus one equals three. And they fail to understand that the the risk associated with the acquiring entity and and pulling in someone of nearly equal size, that is just a rest it it's just a it's just such a huge bite. And and then they when they receive letters of intent or indications of interest and they they and they're disappointed in 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 the value that they're receiving, but they fail to understand that it's related to the risk associated with you know we're 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 two roughly equals. It just financially the risk just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Which brings me to my next question. On you started to talk about post sale integration, and I think everybody has has seen the study by um, Harvard where what eighty seven percent of mergers, you know, don't shake out the way they originally intended. And I guess, especially with with culture, you know, we've developed a culture here. I'm curious to know, you know, have you seen any anything that would that a seller could look at and say, you know, I could see these guys working well with our with with our team, you know, so can you talk a little bit about post-sale integration and culture and, 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 and how to identify that? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if you're starting to think about integration and it's, you're signing the deal, it's too late, right? You should really be thinking about the strategy <laughs> no, that- for the acquisition and the integration as you're working on the deal. And I, I saw a really good um, example of this with my client when they were acquired by a strategic um, because before the deal was signed, we were having meetings um, about the team, the roles, the expectations, and though that's 
strategic and tactical to do that, right? And and I think that it was important because it also helped my client, who was the seller, in making that mental leap to, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be the owner and running this anymore. I'm going to be a member of, right? I'm going to be leading this unit. And so that kind of emotional transition is important to acknowledge. As far as culture goes, you know, it's hard to really put your finger on what is it. I was just talking to a client earlier today that it's it's values and it's belief systems. And my opinion is that it's values and belief systems that the company has. And we want fit, which means the people need to feel that their cult, their values and belief systems fit with that. You can't have discord. You can't have incongruence or else we as humans can't. We're going to be very unsatisfied, very frustrated. We can't survive in that environment. Sure. It has to line up. So what if a company has not done a good job of articulating its core values and beliefs? Well, then what are you comparing it against? Which is why in the work I do with, with businesses is, you know, some, sometimes it's very fundamental. We've not yeah. written down what our core values are. I have a client where it's uh, family led and they, they've been around for a long time and they just keep doing what they're doing. And I said, what are your core values? She was having some employee issues and she said, you know, we don't have them written down. I said, let's just talk. Okay. So she started talking and I wrote them down and I put full sentences there. And all of a sudden we have a core values, you know, document. She goes, oh my God, this is fantastic. (laughs) And she was using it in performance reviews and helping give guideposts. That's what, what culture ultimately is our behaviors and beliefs. And if you're a buyer or you're a seller and you're looking at fit, well, what are you, again, what are you comparing? So you could say, um, we like this about ourselves. We want to maintain these things. Well, if one of those things is being family owned, well, guess what? If you're being sold, you're not going to be family owned. But what might really matter is community and how mm-hmm. we treat each other and how we feel like family and that it doesn't really need to be family owned to have that value. Yeah. So. I think that it's a great exploration for matching the fit on culture, but culture can be very territorial also. And so a watch out is maybe an owner doesn't really want to sell <laughs> because, I, yeah. and they're yeah. using culture as a wall. Yeah. Like my company has won awards and we won, we win prizes for culture and no one's going to be able to do what we do. And sure. if someone buys us, my team's going to leave. Yep. Uh, oh, okay. So where does that leave you in 50 years? Um, All right. And where does it leave your people? You know, well, what's it. the bigger picture here? So as far as acquisitions go on the fit side, yeah, I think it's a, it's an important thing to think about probably more so on the giant traps or the giant incongruencies, less so on the margins. I get it. So along those same lines, and and I and I I wanted to add this to my list of questions, but you know we're seeing so many EOS based companies. Are you seeing? Uh, do I've always wanted to know if there's any case studies and and in the research in your book, maybe you have it. I I don't know, but do EOS driven companies and, and those that have kind of that, that underlying platform, do they sell superior to, to just, you know, regular old operating companies that don't have, you know, these are our rocks for the quarter and, and, and the like. It's such, it's so funny. I literally recorded an episode this morning of succession oh. stories. And with my guest, I, I literally said those words out loud that if anyone has data on that to please oh. reach out to me, maybe we should commission our own study. I am curious too. I would think that there is a correlation, a positive correlation, because the good work that yeah. a business owner is going to do to implement a system mm-hmm. like EOS or anything like similar to it, where it's organizing processes and teams and people to get all the oars in the water at the same time at the same pace. I mean, ultimately, that should produce better business results, which should drive better outcomes on valuation. So, uh, you know, intuitively, I would assume the answer is yes, but I do not I, have I any too. data on that. Well, that's funny. So the folks that own EOS are just up the street. 
And you would think that that you know they're they're within a stone's throw, and and so I think that's that's an excellent conversation that we're, that we're trying to commission some sort of study to figure out whether or not EOS driven companies are more valuable. I intuitive intuitively I agree with you. I think it, I think they probably are. Yeah, that moves us to ESOPs. <laughs> Let's talk about an ESOP. So everybody everybody believes that an ESOP is the way to get out of business. And I guess I'm curious to know your thoughts about this path, because I, I know in our practice, you know, we're what we're we're recording this at the end of May. I'll bet you we've had three, three clients or three prospective clients show up trying to unwind their ESOP that somebody jammed, you know, a, an ESOP into it was just the wrong tool. So, so I'm, I'm curious to know what your thoughts on, on people doing ESOPs and, and, and how that is a transition option. Well, the number one thing to know about an ESOP is that it is government regulated and it's part of, you know, it's the overarching laws, ERISA. Mm. And it is for that reason. Um, one of the benefits is a, your entity, when you sell your company to an ESOP, it's it's a it's a transaction like every other transaction. That's how do you think how you should think about it. You're selling it to an ESOP trust, and that trust is a tax free entity, and so the company is be then becoming tax free, and which is a major benefit, right? And it's very attractive because you can think, oh my goodness, what would I do with another thirty percent of cash in the bank? Sure. And companies who have an eye towards growth. Use the many of them use the funds to acquire other companies and continue to grow, and it can be very, very exciting. Um, it's also, uh, you know, again, a mechanism for an owner to take chips off the table. They don't have to sell 100% of their stake, they can sell a minority stake, they can sell majority. So that's up to them, and they could also do it over time. So it is somewhat flexible. Um, I, you know, I have a client that's uh, very much interested in ESOP and he's been doing a lot of research on it and he's even gotten educated on it. He's taken an additional class and getting certified and he's really taking an interest and I'm helping uh, introduce him to others who are important stakeholders uh, on an advisor side and he's doing his research. And at the end of the day, I'm helping him as well as others to make a good decision. Yeah. There are people who rush into things and, you know, kind of get the gold, you know, this little carrot of tax free and boy, isn't that amazing? And isn't this wonderful? And whereas you're right, maybe it isn't a fit for them. Um, there are requirements for for things that once you become an ESOP, you know, the ESOP trust and your trustee, you've got to have the right partners on your side to help make sure that everything is done annually that needs to be done and that you're compliant with the law. So that's important. The other really mm -hmm. big thing to think about uh, whether or not an ESOP is a fit for you, I, I do think is the size of the business to start. Now, there's debate. You know, are there some heuristics around this? Um, I just talked to a friend the other day who's in the similar space as us, Ed, and he said, oh, company has to have at least two and a half million of EBITDA or it is not worth it at all. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I've heard, you know, one and a half, two million. No, no, no. He says, it's got to be larger. It's just not worth it. I'm like, okay. So I, there, there's no one hard and fast rule, but for my research for the book and what I've put in here um, with a couple of you know general general statements is that it could be a good fit for a company that is has a demographic diversity where not everyone's the same age, not everyone's going to be retiring at the same time, because essentially an ESOP is um, a a future payment to an employee that's vested in this program. Um, upon leaving the company. So if right. everyone leaves at the same time, you've got a pretty major liability. <laughs> and right. so not only is it the upfront math and financial analysis on what's this going to cost me and what's my general ROI, right. which, you know, one rule of thumb is about three years payback. So, okay. But what happens in the future? What's this future liability look like? And, and what's the census of my organization? Am I going to have an issue oh, or not and how do point. we pay this and fund this and all yada yada you have to plan for that so if you don't have a good advisor or tax advisor um you know whether it's an esop advisor who's experienced in this as an intermediary yeah. 
or if it's a right. um, tax and accounting firm that has ASOP experience, I would highly recommend doing both sides of that financial analysis, just so you understand what this could look like. Well, and and the debt surrounding the the origination of the ESOP, I mean, the seller is probably going to be the one of the guarantors of that debt, and I and I don't think that while they they are certainly able to get get you know the equity out of the business or you know a fractional in, you know the fractional equity out of the business, they're still you still maintain the liability. So if it while it's a an excellent mechanism to get get you know move the um move the equity into other shareholders or or employees you know i think that this is you know it's it's not the always the right tool and 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 it just like i said it it like you were saying it, the the census of of the composition of who's going to be part of the esop i think is the most important thing that you said because that really is is probably more forward thinking that the that the business owner should consider as opposed to the tax benefit. So I, I'm glad. Yeah, and again, the that. tax benefit could be a mechanism. So that's a mechanism of paying back the loan, right? Um, which is why I think three years is generally a benchmark that the loan should be paid back because of the tax savings. You're using that money. The company is using that money to pay back the loan. Um, and, you know, again, then the owner is taking some taking the chips off the yeah. table, which is which is probably a good thing to diversify their their yeah. net worth. Yeah, that's good. So I, I, I've got a couple more questions. Um, so we everybody wants to know the timing. You know, it's impossible to time the market, but how do you time this kind of event? It, because it is so hard. And, it, and it, I know it, it depends on, on who the seller is, but at the same time, you know, is there anything that triggers, you know, here's some of the tripwires that you know you know it's time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, one of the things is just to look in the mirror and be honest, right? And um, one of the things could be your health. And if you've been having health issues or maybe your business partner's having health issues, that's not a great situation. No one wants that at all. But it also can be detrimental to the value of your business. So that's why I advocate to um, try to work on this when we're all in good health and mind, right? So right. that that's sort of first and foremost. Um, we never know when the music's going to stop, right? We're playing musical chairs and we never know. And so it's really good to be ready and, and have a set a business that's ready for sale at any time, because you never know when someone's going to be approaching you that it is the right fit. And if you have a ready to sell business, then that's just yep. a good thing, right? It's just, yeah. you're, that means you're running a good, healthy business anyway. Um, there's all kinds of sob stories when people have missed that opportunity to sell. Rand Fishkin is a famous story, um, lost $200 million, uh, by not selling the HubSpot. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Right. Um, and so somebody like Rand Fishkin is always going to have the regret of, oh, woulda, shoulda, coulda, right? right? Um, there's probably other people that are thinking about the economy and thinking, oh, I'm going to time the market. I'm going to. You know, I'm going to be a either peak seller and and try to sell at the peak, right. which is very very challenging. And and I have um, you know, some data on this. But basically, if we look at the data from around 2008 2009, and if you sold your business at the peak, and let's just ignore taxes for a second, sure. but like if you sold it at the peak, and then what did you do? You need you took your proceeds and you invested it in the market. Well, you were investing in the market at the peak. So if you take somebody who, if at that same time sold their business for less, um, or in around 2009, let's say, excuse me, they sold it in the, in the lowest point in the economic cycle. So here we are coming yep. out of the recession, right? It's a kind of a crappy time. Um, they, they probably got a little bit more than seller A, right? They probably got a little bit more on the price um, because for them, they're now buying into um, a low point in the portfolio. And so and from a buy and hold standpoint, if you compare those two over the next you know, 10, 12 years, whatever it is, um, the second seller that sold at the, that lower point is going to be better off in a total portfolio standpoint. So what's the, yeah. ups what's the upshot? The upshot is, look, guys, it's really hard to time the market. 
And your money's going to have to go somewhere after you transact anyway, unless you're rolling it into, you know, a 1031 exchange or something. Um, and so it's really difficult to to say, I'm going to sell at a peak or I'm going to time it this and that. So mm-hmm. what I what I would rather us think about is um, being ready, just being yeah. ready, because if that little bluebird knocks on your door and says, I'm interested in your business and you want to have that conversation and it turns out, my goodness, this is my moment. I don't want to miss it. Yeah. You know, have that have that um, open mindedness to pursue it. And because yeah. you just don't know your business might be a great business and a golden goose. And it might feel scary to not have that income coming your way. But if the, if it's worth it to transact, diversify your what is probably the largest part of your net worth. Right. Um, you know, it, it's probably worth doing it. If you find yourself in your business, too, I just want to add this one point. If you find yourself in your business that you're complacent and you just want to coast, that's a danger zone. And I think that's a huge tripwire. That's a good point. Because this downward coasting and taking your foot off the gas where you're just you're comfortable, you're complacent, you know, eventually customers start to drop. What's going to happen to your valuation? So it might feel great to just sort of coast a little bit and take some pressure off yourself. But big picture, you're going to be hurting your valuation. Um, My advocation is to capitalize on your winning streak. If your business is hot and you're on the upswing, that's the best time to sell. Don't mind the market. It's when your business is doing great things and health is for key people is good. And and there's no tragedies happening because listen, buyers buy when they're ready. Okay. So will you be ready? And that's the main thing. Yeah, and I think I think business owners just fail to 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 fail to understand what it means for that illiquid asset to become liquid, and and it's it's not just stock market. Call up your stockbroker, and and all of a sudden three days to cash. It, it doesn't work that way, and the likelihood of you know, that it, that it works out, you know, and, and again, you, you talk about it in, in your book on, on preparation and how, and the things you need to do that, that facilitate the marketability that increases the likelihood of a liquidity event. And that's the, that's, I think one of the, the key takeaways that, that you've, you've said in the book, you know, it, it is about liquidity. And I don't think that they, I th- I think I'm hoping from, from our conversation that that's what they'll take away from this is that it's just, it, it is truly about the liquidity, not, you know, there's, there may be value penalties. You may have, there may be, you may be paying for sins of the past, but nevertheless, the look, you know, that you can't help how the buyer looks at it. what you can do is, is find a pool of buyers that look at it a different way. And then you have the option to select. Yeah. Um, so there's tons of noise right now. Um, I, w- I was reading a study that the average search fund, they're going through over 100 SIMs. So the, and for our listeners, it, the, that means the confidential information memorandum. It's the marketing information that typically goes to a, a buyer that's qualified and has executed the appropriate confidentiality um, agreements. So they have a hundred sims. They've submitted seven LOIs in order to get one deal. That, I guess, where, where I'm heading, and this is along the same lines in, that I hope your book provides you know, the the reader, is that they're outgunned going into this process. You know, and that's a because they're, they've had tons of reps. How, you only sell your business once, so I guess that's what I'm. I'm hoping to. I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about how do you d- d- differentiate the noise from the signal when you start getting because people, you know, the and I'm certain your clients are getting it too, where they're getting so many calls, so many emails, so many letters every single day of people saying, boy, I really would like to take a look at your business. So how do you, how do you, how do you separate that? Yeah. Uh, I'm a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor. And Mm -hmm. 
as a professional, one of the things that I pride myself on is if I have a buy side client and I'm doing outreach on behalf of that buy side client to try to find proprietary deals, which are the deals mm-hmm. that are not on the market yet. Everybody wants the proprietary deal. Sure. There's a good reason for that. But yeah. um, if I'm doing that outreach and I say I'm reaching on behalf of a client and they're paying my fee, by golly, I have a client. Yeah. And there could be some people that say what I'm saying, but they don't have the client lined up. Mm. Because no. they want to open the door with that mechanism. I don't yep. do that. Again, if I'm, I'm from an ethics standpoint, there is a client behind my email and it leads to conversations. So yeah. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I'm calling this out is because many buyers will say to me, yeah, you know, I don't know if these are real. One of my clients sent me one of them and he said, is this real? And I say, and I looked them up and yeah, it was, it was legit. It was a real firm and it was a real mm-hmm. client they had. And you know, it just doesn't feel, it just doesn't feel, it feels weird, I think, to, for these yeah. buyers, for this, for the sellers, because they're, they're getting all this outreach. They don't know what to do with it. A lot of people say, yeah, I have, the, I create a folder and I just save these messages. And I say, great, yeah. you know, when I'm going to work with you and represent you on the sell side, let's, let's look at those. Let's see who's coming sure. to you organically. Let's take a peek. Mm-hmm. But I say, well, what do you do with them? And they say, I ignore them. I just ignore them. I don't know what to do. Now, because I do sell side work and buy side work, I like to, you know, talk about both sides. I think it's really valuable to understand both sides. And Agreed. I like to try to find win-win deals. So um, the best thing as a seller is to try to see your business from a buyer's perspective, right? If we can, if we can see its flaws, then we're not going to be shocked when they're pointed out to us and someone tells their baby is ugly. <laughs> we're not going to get right, upset. Right. We're going to say, yeah, we're, we're, we're working on that. Here's how we're working on that. Um, we're not going to be shocked by it, right? We're not hiding things in diligence. A company that's been preparing and, and, and has a realistic sense of where its strengths are and where its opportunities are will be more prepared um, to have its financials ready for review, for discussion. That's like, hi, how are you? Yeah, what are your financials, right? It's like a handshake. It, you just have to have them prepared. I've had so many of these proprietary reach outs just die on the vine because the sellers, okay, they have QuickBooks, but they're not that organized and the wife's busy and she can't get them together and yada, yada, but (laughs) it just goes nowhere. And that's horrible. So if we can just be organized and consistent with our financials, yay, like step one. Okay. You don't have to have anything, have anything more complicated than that. Like I was saying earlier about working with the PE group on the buy side, we would joke and he'd say, look, it's a back of the napkin conversation. If I can get a napkin, I'm happy. I mean, at some level, the financials being consistently reported and accurate is like table stakes. It just makes everything go smoother from there. Um, As far as these search funds, yeah, I mean, I've bumped into them quite a bit. I've had a couple folks on my show and I get it. They're looking for this perfect. Everybody wants the million dollar plus EBITDA and these sectors and da, 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 and cash flow, you know, cash flow positive and, and recurring revenue. And yeah. Everybody wants that. So they're all fishing in the same ponds. And it is tricky because it's imperfect information. And it's a it's a very interesting buy side, sell side kind of deal. We don't have the giant MLS of the states and, you know, but we are brokers and we're trying to we're trying to find buyers and sellers for for these things. And yeah, for sellers, they only sell their business once. And I, I, you know, here with putting my sell side hat on and representing sellers, I'll say this. I, I, even if someone comes to you and you think it's a good fit, I would recommend that you still get someone on your side as an M&A advisor. Mm-hmm. So for example, with my role with Stony Hill, um, we do what we call facilitation deals. So let's say I haven't found the buyer, the buyer for you. They've found you and they're, they're now, you know, you've established contact. But there's so many potential pitfalls in you negotiating this deal directly and not even all the emotional stuff, but just all the details that need to happen. Plus, a lot of it's easy for things to go wrong. Step one, did you have an NDA signed? Like just the basics. um, You'd be surprised how often the answer is no. And so my my advocacy here is that if someone's approaching you to buy your business and you think that you want to pursue it please still have someone on your team to advise you on the deal. Yeah. And you know what? And just having that exploratory conversation will, will get you miles ahead, but, but recognizing that, that these buyers have many, many, many more reps than you do at looking at businesses than you have selling. 
All right. Well, I know I'm I'm bumping up on time, so I want to I want to be sensitive to it. And and in your case, you do quotes. You know, in my case, I have one. I ask this every time, and I I'm fairly certain I know the the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So if you had one piece of advice that you would give business owners that would have an immediate impact on the saleability of their business, what would it be? I have two things. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take them. Yeah. Well, the main, the main idea is to be able to look in the mirror and just be really, um, take a fresh look at your business. So I have a business assessment and I think a tool like that where you can really take a fresh look at your business to understand um, what its strengths are and what its potential risks are is table stakes. Like you really should do that and check in. Mm -hmm. And if you're able to do a business valuation to understand the value of your business today, great. Let's just get a baseline because we need to build from there. If you don't know what your business is worth and you don't know what risks and pitfalls you might have, you can't work on them. So I guess there's three things. (laughs) The third thing would be just start the process. You don't have to sell. You're not making any decisions. And everything you do is going to help you run a more a more profitable, more enjoyable business. So why wouldn't you do it anyway? It's all good, good work. Yeah. All right. Well, what's what's the best way we can get in touch with you? My website is the business transition and okay. you can set up time with me there. And LinkedIn is awesome. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know. Let me know that you heard me on Ed's show and would love to have a conversation. Uh, and if you're interested in the assessment that I mentioned, absolutely be happy to connect you for that. And the other important, the other the important book. thing, <laughs> the book, the book, the business transition handbook. And we can we can go to your website and get that. Or do should we go to Amazon? We don't want to pay Amazon fees. You can pay Amazon. That's fine. My I have a book page <laughs> on my site, but I'm going to okay. bounce you Amazon as well. But yes. All right. Well, Lori. You know what? I'm so grateful for the time. I, I it was, you were you were everything I had hoped you'd be. So thanks. Oh, uh, thank you, Ed. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on the How to Sell Your Business podcast. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to help sell your business for the maximum value, visit howtosellabusinesspodcast.com for tips and best practices to make your exit life-changing. Better yet, subscribe now so you never miss future episodes. This program is copyrighted by MISO Inc. All rights reserved.